Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. Please, please read along with me in your Bibles or your scripture sheet or the Pew Bibles. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, God. Turn to the scripture we read with Bill just a few moments ago from Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. We're in a study. If you're visiting, we're in a study in the gospel according to Luke. We've been here for well over two years. Uh, Line by line, going through this gospel. I've done this study uh, several times in Luke. And I can't tell you how much this study has meant to me in doing it afresh with you over these last two to three years. Uh, as, we, as we near the end of it, I know you're tired of Luke. I know you're saying, what are we going to get out of Luke? Well, I have... I've, I've gotten, uh, as I've come toward the end of it, I'm, I am just the opposite. I'm sad it's coming to a close. This is such a great gospel. Uh, and I, it's meant more to me this time. And I've learned so much, even though I've done it before, I learned so much this time going through this. Um, we've looked, we're, we're in the last week of Jesus' life, the last three days now. And uh, the last three Sundays, we have, this is the third Sunday, this has been a three-sermon series on the trial of Jesus. There are actually three trials uh, in which uh, Jesus was set before court. And we've looked at the first two this morning. We come to the third. Before we do, let's pray and ask that Jesus who was there and who's here this morning, let's ask him in the power of his Holy Spirit to speak to us. Jesus in the courtroom of a debauched king. Two Sundays ago, we saw Jesus in the religious courtroom of the Sanhedrin. Jesus before the Old Testament church. Jesus before his own people. Or what should have been his people. Then last week, we saw Jesus appear in the civil courtroom. Before it was an ecclesiastical courtroom. This was a civil courtroom of the Roman Empire. Jesus stood before Pilate. Then there was an interlude. Then there's an interlude that happens in the trial before Pilate. The Roman governor sent Jesus to a Jewish courtroom that preceded, that presided over matters of Galilee the northern province, and that's where Jesus was from. He found out Jesus was Galilean. Hey, we'll send him to Herod. He belongs in Herod's courtroom. 
why do we have these three trials? I believe there's a reason that God and his providence brought this to be. I think it's very obvious. Jesus, in these courtrooms, was condemned by every segment of the world society. These three courtrooms stand to remind us of the universal nature of his rejection by mankind. Klaus Skilder is one of the greatest teachers and writers in the history of Christ on the, in the history of Christendom on the passion of Christ. He wrote a trilogy. It was really a series of sermons. And it was published in three volumes on the sufferings, the trials, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is what he said about the trials. Quote, we must know that all things in the world must cooperate in pronouncing the death sentence upon Christ. Every manifestation of human, social, every classification of life of the world, every mode of life must say to Christ, go out and die. We have seen how Jesus in the religious courtroom related to where we are today. The church in every generation has put him on trial. And we have seen the majority of mainline churches say the same thing to Jesus that the Pharisees said, that the Sanhedrin said in that trial. Hadn't changed. Then we saw how Jesus stood in the Roman court and how that was so relevant to us that that Pilate in so many ways was that postmodern. Say, <laughs> there's no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is relevant. It's what we want it to be. This morning, this message makes me tremble more than the other two. We shall see how Jesus stands before the debauched judge of a local civil court and how it once more it is powerfully seen today in our culture. First, as we look at this passage, I want you to see an inevitable intersection. An inevitable, inevitable intersection. Look at verses 6 and 7. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. Because we know the story, we know the story of Jesus. Herod just, we know, we, Herod belongs in the story of Jesus. He's part of the narrative. But think about it. The only way people generally in the 20th century know anything about a Herod is Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. Actually, there were two Herods involved with Jesus. There was the Herod who hosted the wise men and called and killed the little boy babies in Bethlehem as he tried to put an end to Jesus at the beginning. He was full of a fanatical paranoia. 
He died when Jesus was two years old. The Herod in this episode is that Herod's son. His name, this Herod's name was Herod Antipas. But when we hear the word Herod, oh, that's in the story of Jesus. However, if you really knew Herod and what you're going to come to understand this morning, you would not have, you would not think that he has anything to do with the life of Jesus. You would think he shouldn't have anything to do with the life of Jesus. The Herod family in general were a conniving, murder, murderous, sexually immoral, conniving. They were traitors to their own people. They would betray their subjects. They would kill members of their own household for power, for wealth. Herod Antipas was the puppet king. He was made king by Rome, the puppet king of the northern province of Galilee. He held office for 43 years. Once when he was visiting Rome, he stole his brother's wife. When he would returned home, he was planning on killing his present wife, but she escaped before he arrived. He was not Jewish. He was hated by his Jewish subjects. He was an Idumean. In the Old Testament, he would have been called an Edomite. Obviously, this man did not travel in the same circles as Jesus. You, you would not think that their names belong in the same sentence. What does holiness have to do with debauchery? What does purity have to do with putrefaction? Mother Teresa was never on the same platform as Edie Amin. Ellie Weissel was never on the same platform as Adolf Hitler. Yet there's Herod Antipas in the Gospels. His life, as debauched as it was, intersected with the life of Jesus. His life intersected not only with the life of Jesus, but with the life of John the Baptist, Jesus' ambassador. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest preacher who had ever lived to that point. Look at Mark 6, 17 and see this intersection with John the Baptist. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife in Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Odd. Both Jesus and John the Baptist stood before Herod in his courtroom. The two holiest men in the world. Their lives intersected with a man who was infamous. For his decadence. Folks, I don't care how far an individual is from God. This is a great picture for us. How far a person's life is from scripture. How far a person's life is from the word preached. Somewhere, that person's life, every person's life, will intersect with his word and his truth. How do I know this? Again, look on your scripture sheet at Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He's not talking about the Bible here. 
This is God's special revelation. He's talking about the revelation of creation. He said creation. Look at verse 2. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words where theirs is not heard. Every person that's ever been born in this world has heard and seen every day God's proclamation through his creation. It's a universal language no one can escape. Paul, this is, this is what Paul was saying in the book of Romans. Look at Romans 2, 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves even though they do not have the law. In other words, they don't have the Bible. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Even in his own conscience, even in himself, a man's life intersects with God and the truth of his word. No man can live without his life intersecting with God and his truth. He says it again in Romans 1.20. Look at that scripture. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. Do you understand this? What God is like, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through his word. That's not what it says. It says has been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. Looking at creation. So men are without excuse. No man will ever stand before God and say, I did not know. Paul was repeating the truth in Psalm, of the truth of Psalm 19. And he added the conclusion, there are no excuses. <laughs> I remember listening to Steve Brown. Steve Brown is a, a friend. He's a wonderful PCA, uh, Presbyterian Church in America, minister. Uh, his ministry for most of his life has been in Florida. And I remember listening to a message preached by him about all men being confronted by God, no matter how wicked, no matter how decadent, no matter how atheistic. And he concluded by saying this, and I quote, don't you know that Stalin and Mao Zedong wondered at midnight when they were alone in the dark, when they were alone in their beds, did they not wonder if he's not real, if Christ is not real, why won't he die? Why won't the Christians disappear? Why won't those suckers die? End quote. It's well said. He understood every man's life intersects with God. Werner von Braun, the great German scientist who became a leader with NASA, said it this way. Everything science has taught me and continues to teach me strengthens my belief in the continuity of our spiritual existence after death. End quote. Just as surely as Christ intersected with Herod's life, he's intersected with all of our lives. 
We can't deny that. If we're sitting here this morning, he has intersected with our lives. That's inevitable. Whether you're a covenant child or an all-moral pagan, the question is not whether you saw or heard. There will be no excuses in your heart of hearts. You know the truth. The question will be what you did at that intersection. An inevitable intersection. Some of you, when I preach like this, say, John, you preach like a Baptist. Don't ever say that to me again. This is biblical preaching. This is Presbyterian preaching. It's a preaching of John Calvin. It's a preaching of St. Augustine. It's a preaching of Martin Luther and the Lutheran Church. It's a preaching of the Reformation. It's confronting. This is a hard message. The next point is much harder. An an inevitable intersection. Secondly, a corrupted conscience. Look at verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And Herod with his soldiers, then verse 11, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in a splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Folks, a corrupted conscience. Corrupted in the sense of a conscience that's been rotted out, decayed. Let's trace it. Look at Matthew 6, 19. And Herodias, that's Herod's wife, wife he had taken from his brother, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Even in all his sin, when, 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 he, when he protected John, even when he had him in prison, even in all his sin, his conscience still functioned. He still had a sense of right and wrong. He still had a sense of the spiritual nature of John and the spiritual nature of his own life. But look what happened. If you hadn't heard, read any other scripture, you read this. Mark 6, 21. Finally, the opportune time came. That's Herodias' opportune time. On Herod's birthday, he gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. The next verse, I didn't put it in here. I wish I had. As they bring the head of John the Baptist on a platter to hear. Remember, he was greatly distressed in the beginning. His conscience was eating at him. 
This went on for a while because when he heard about Jesus, he was afraid. It was John the Baptist returned to haunt him. Look at Mark 6, 16. Then when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I hated has been raised from the dead. His conscience. Yet when Jesus shows up in his court, there's no conscience left. There was no longer, there wasn't the fear of Jesus that there was of John the Baptist in the beginning. There was no fear of the holy. He was not thinking like he did with John. He wasn't saying this man is holy and righteous and I'd best be careful. His conscience was eaten away. He looked at Jesus and said, do a trick, Jesus. Do a trick. We've heard you're a magician. Entertain my court with your magic. You do realize we sang the whole reason we sang holy, holy, holy this morning. Holy, holy, holy. That's Jesus. We're singing of Jesus. Triune God. That's who was standing before Herod. Do a trick, Jesus. It's a wonder. The father didn't blow the solar system off of the, out of the universe. And then Herod joined in the mocking parody that turned Jesus into a clown. He put a robe of royalty on him, a rich purple robe, mocking him. You say you're king of the Jews? <laughs> put a robe on him. And they made a crown of thorns and put it on his head. A crown. You're a king? We'll put a crown on you. And Herod mocked Jesus personally. He teased Jesus. He laughed at Jesus. Look at this and learn the conscience, the spiritual sensitive conscience can perish. It becomes rotted with putrefaction. The killing of the conscience. That's what, that's what we strive to achieve in the 20th century. B.F. Skinner, in his famous work, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, you say, what's that have to do? Just listen to me. B.F. Skinner in Beyond Freedom and Dignity taught that man's conscience is a product of the society that conditions your conscience. It's not an innate thing in which you're inborn. Your society around you determines your conscience. Not the, it's, not, it's not part of the image of God and man. It's just it's, we're animals. B.F. Skinner said we're animals. And the community of animals around us trains our conscience. What a man feels is conditioned by society. Then Skinner wrote another book called Walden II. In that book, he created a utopia that was conditioned to what was right and wrong by its director. The director's fictional director's name was T.E. Frazier. Our world... The world you live in, totally brought into the philosophy of B.F. Skinner. Postmodernity allows each one of us to have our own morality. Each one of us are T.E. Frazier's. But that very morality, that very permissive code that has been personalized by us and to us, that relative morality destroys our conscience. That very Morality destroys our conscience. 
because it's not truth. Think about what Hitler did. Hitler did the same thing as Hitler did the same thing in Germany. There's a sign that hung over Auschwitz. It's a quote from Hitler. I want to raise a generation devoid of conscience. What did Hitler mean? Hitler believed in right and wrong. His morality, his right was Aryan supremacy. His morality, his right was the annihilation of Jews and Slavs and blacks. He was saying, I want to destroy the biblical conscience of Western civilization. Hitler wanted to be T.E. Frazier. Thanks. You say, that's interesting history. That same sign that hung over Auschwitz hangs invisibly over our televisions. It hangs invisibly over the movies coming out of Hollywood. It hangs over the entrance to our universities. We want to raise a generation devoid of the conscience that God gave his creation. The relative permissive morality we embrace is destroying the conscience without which our families and institutions will collapse. That's what happened to Herod. You think it's not relative to us? Our society is becoming in mass the 20th century Herod, 21st century Herod. An inevitable intersection a corrupt conscience. And finally, it doesn't get any better. It gets worse. You see the sounds of silence. Look at Luke 23, 9. So we questioned him at some length. This was not for two or three minutes. But he made no answer. Silence. Jesus was not silent before Pilate. He wasn't silent before the Sanhedrin. He spoke. Something happened in the episode with Herod that happens nowhere else in the gospel. A man speaks to Jesus over an extended time and Jesus would not condescend to speak to him. He looked at Herod and said nothing. And we say, oh, that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before him his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Well, he certainly fulfilled that prophecy. But that was not the reason that he was silent. He wasn't saying, oh, I've got to fulfill this prophecy, so I'm going to be silent. He did not answer, Herod. He answered with loud sounds of silence. The silence spoke for his contempt for Herod. The silence spoke of Jesus' holy regard for God's word. The silence spoke of Herod as a man who was condemned already. Jesus' silence was saying, Herod, I sent you a man. A man stood in this place. He was my, he was God's emissary. He was God's ambassador. And you killed him. You killed him because of a teenage girl's seductive dance, Herod. I will not waste my breath. You did not listen to John the Baptist. And you say, oh, Jesus doesn't talk like that. Not to Jesus I know. Well, then you don't know Jesus. Jesus not only talked like that, 
when he did talk like that, he was practicing a biblical principle. Look at Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus' silence was, silence was making a statement about Herod's debauched condition. This is an aspect of God's judgment when a people become so wicked, so depraved, so perverted, so debauched, God will remove his word. He will say, we're done here. You don't believe that? Look at Amos 8, 11. I could spend the rest of the day and you say, don't please don't there. So we'll just look at one. Amos 8, 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In the days of Amos, what happened to Herod individual happened to Israel. Jesus, the son of God, the greatest prophet who ever lived, said God's word will not be spoken with you, Herod. It's over. That happened in Israel. God says, I'm not speaking anymore. And Israel went to and fro, north, south, east, west, looking for God's word. They couldn't find it. Why? Because God said, I'm signed. I'm done. You're a debauched nation. A student was working with C.S. Lewis. Wouldn't you love to have the privilege of studying under C.S. Lewis personal personal study? He was writing a, a paper. And he stopped by Lewis' office. Lewis had told him to come by to to. Look at the paper. Listen to what the student had done so far. It was in Lewis's office. Just this student, C.S. Lewis. And so he began to read his paper. And after a bit, he looked up. and C.S. Lewis was dead to the world. Asleep. And the student went over and he woke him up. And he said, Dr. Lewis. He said, I came by here. I want you to hear my paper. I want you to critique my paper. And Lewis looked at him and said, don't you realize that my sleeping was my critique? Jesus would say to the debauched individual who plays with the holy, to the debauched nation who plays with the holy, my silence is my critique. If you look around you in this country, that's exactly what happened in our society. The silence of God is progressing across our land. Mainline churches have deserted God's word, and you know it. There are places where you will go. I have friends who live in different places in this country that drive an hour and a half to church. Folks, that's what's happening. I was talking to a young man yesterday who's telling me about a ministry in Sweden, Norway. Two percent of that population ever darkens. We're not talking about about going to church every Sunday. We're talking about two percent of the population is ever darkened. 
in our day, right now. The door of the church. What's going to happen here? Why? Why do I know that? I know that because the truth of God's word. If it it doesn't happen, God's word is not true. Because when we abandon, it's not the word has not been taught. When we abandon the teaching of God's word, when we become debauched on every level of our society, the more that happens, the more silence we will hear from God's word. And you say, John, this is awful. What can I do? What can CPC do? What can Christ Presbyterian do? We can make sure it doesn't disappear from our lives and from our homes. Some of you children that are here, it's been preached in your homes. You've heard it all your life. And there'll come a time where you will make a decision. It's either going to be preached in your home or it won't be preached. Joshua said it this way, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me, my household, we will serve the Lord. We can continue to sing and teach our children to sing as the world around us descends into darkness. We can still sing just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me.